0: Welcome to the Holistic Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Courtney Snyder, a functional medicine physician and holistic psychiatrist. In this episode, I'll be discussing a rarely considered, but I will argue, very common root cause to mental health issues in college students, and that would be mold toxicity acquired from college dorms. I'll comment on the statistics that relate to the mental health crisis on college campuses and talk briefly about the stories our culture tells us about why someone will drop out of college. Mostly, however, I'll be explaining how, from a physiologic standpoint, someone can go to college thriving and having great hope for the future to living in a dorm with mold, whether they see the mold or not, And then go on to have a new onset of depression, anxiety, attention issues, or may simply lose motivation or energy for school and drop out. Lastly, I'll be mentioning how one can acquire testing for mold toxicity without a physician's involvement and what that treatment for mold toxicity might look like. So I'd like to start with some statistics. And these come from the college student mental health statistics of 2019. So first I'm going to talk about overall. 25% of students have been diagnosed or treated for mental health conditions in the past year. 35% of college students are struggling with mental health problems. And 64% of college students will drop out because of mental health reasons. Regarding depression, 27% 27% of college students have been diagnosed with depression. 30% of students who are diagnosed with depression will go on to drop out of college. 21.2% of students who are diagnosed with depression will have lifelong symptoms, which really begs the question, what happened to them in college or what happened during this time in their life? Regarding anxiety, 11% of college students have been diagnosed with anxiety. 61% of students who seek help are citing anxiety as the main reason. 57.7% of college students confess that they have felt overwhelming anxiety in the prior year. Two to eight percent of college students will be diagnosed with ADHD, 24% of percent of students are struggling with symptoms of bipolar disorder, and 50 percent of students admit to having had suicidal thoughts, and lastly, nine percent of college students have attempted suicide. So in my own training in conventional psychiatry, it was always understood that more severe forms of mental illness, namely bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, start in the late teen years and young adult years. As is the case with much of conventional psychiatry, the focus is not necessarily on why, but it's more on identifying symptoms, giving diagnoses, and then alleviating the symptoms through intervention such as medication. In functional medicine, however, the approach we take is to seek out the causes of the issues to begin with, with the intention of addressing those root causes as a means to alleviate the symptoms. And both of these types of treatment can be done in parallel. For example, someone can be on psychiatric medications to get some symptom relief while also digging down for the deeper root causes. Without going into much detail, I would argue that some of what can happen during this time in one's life, late teens and early adulthood, has to do with stress hormone pathways and inflammation that starts to occur after sex hormones have come on board. In short, many people seem to have a mutation in an enzyme that impacts stress hormone pathways, and this leads to them being more prone to inflammation when they are under greater psychologic and physiologic stress. But even with that being said, one of the I believe common physiologic stressors that can trigger symptoms in individuals is mold toxicity. So just on the surface, as our culture considers why a student might drop out of college, there's different stories that all of us may come up with. It may be that, oh, they partied too much, they drank too much, didn't eat well, didn't sleep well. Maybe they lacked motivation and discipline, or maybe they don't have direction They just didn't know what they wanted to do. It was hard to find a focus as they didn't know what they wanted to do in the future. It may relate to not sleeping enough, relational stress, being away from family, even increased time on the internet and social media could be culprits. But most of these stories, as you can see, places the blame and responsibility on the young adult many who will go through their adult lives carrying this identity that college just wasn't for them. But what if there is another story we could be considering? What if a common denominator of college students' mental health issues lies in the dorms, the old dorms, the dorms that aren't maintained, the dorms that never see the big endowments? It Apparently, if someone donates a large sum of money to a university it will often go to newer buildings that will then have their name on it not necessarily to maintenance of older dorms and though I say old dorms it's true as well that new dorms can be as problematic for example if the air has a persistently high humidity there will be mold growth and that mold you may see or it could be in the ventilation system and not be seen. There's also other forms of mold that aren't seen, mold that results from retained water from a small leak in the roof or a pipe that leaks causing mold growth behind a wall. This isn't just dorms, obviously. It can be daycares, elementary schools, high schools, homes, businesses all deserving of their own podcast to raise awareness. But the reason I'm focusing on college students is that this is a situation in which someone goes off somewhere to live, a place that is intended to take care of them and help launch them into their future. But instead, very often they are spending much of their time sleeping and even during their waking hours in a space where they're breathing and ingesting toxins. Students and their parents obviously trust colleges that they are paying money to. Unfortunately, the idea, too, that college life should be a little rough, that dorms aren't supposed to be palaces, can only reinforce this idea and problem of young people living not in simple, modest spaces, but in toxic environments. So how does mold toxicity impact mental health? How does it impact Those statistics that I mentioned about anxiety, depression, ADHD, bipolar disorder, and even suicide. So it's estimated that 50% of buildings have water damage. And it's also estimated that 25% of people are unable to mount a typical immune response to mold toxins. So as you can imagine, that's a great number of people who are vulnerable in a great number of buildings that are vulnerable to water damage. Likely, this percentage, 50% of buildings, is much higher when you consider dorms. And again, where there's water damage and retained moisture, there is an ideal medium for toxic mold to grow rapidly and produce spores that are then sent out into the air and which carry toxins. It isn't just the infamous black mold or Stachybotrys that's the problem. Aspergillus, penicillium, fusarium, and chitonium are also molds that make toxins that can be acquired through inhalation, ingestion and through the skin. And again, it's not mold is not always visible. It can be in crawl spaces, in attics, behind walls, under sinks. It can be within a component of the air conditioning system or even the ductwork. The spores can disseminate easily. And this is not the same as outdoor mold and that outdoor mold has checks and balances and it's typically not retained and concentrated in a contained space. So again you might ask well wouldn't more students in a moldy dorm become sick and again as i mentioned 25% of students of people don't mount a typical immune response to mold toxins. So those individuals will start to accumulate toxins. And it's not to say they couldn't have already had some exposure and already had some toxicity building up through former schools or even homes. It's just that dorms are especially vulnerable places and especially vulnerable places for at least 25% of the population. The mold toxins generally need specific interventions to get out of the body, which I'll talk about later, and those are called binders. But the mold toxins in the body will interfere with the immune system and and the central nervous system, the hormonal system. Um, It can cause quite systemic problems. But as the brain is a good barometer, of toxicity in the body, oftentimes psychiatric symptoms will be the only um, symptoms. And this this toxicity and the way that it interferes with the immune system can also make it more likely that someone will colonize with mold, meaning that the mold takes hold in the sinuses and or gastrointestinal tract. And both of these explain why, for many people, simply getting out of a moldy environment is not enough to alleviate the symptoms uh, because typical detoxification measures don't remove mold toxins adequately, which is why we use binders. But also, if someone has colonized with mold, then they are carrying within them a source of um, toxicity. The mold in them is making more toxins. So once acquired, the toxins enter the cell and start an inflammatory process, meaning the immune system starts to recognize something's there that shouldn't be there. And it's this immune reaction, what we call inflammation, that can impact the brain. And just as a joint can become inflamed, the brain can become inflamed. And a brain that is inflamed doesn't work as it should. For anyone wanting to read the deeper science behind this, my last blog post on my website, Courtney Snyder MD, is called excuse me, Courtney SnyderMD.com is called "Mass Cell Activation and Brain Inflammation, How to Calm Things Down. So the limbic system, the part of the brain that alerts us to danger, knows that something's wrong, but doesn't know what that is exactly, and our culture hasn't given us this idea that mold could be what's wrong. So we might put that ang- that anxiety and say, oh, the source is a relationship, or the source is schoolwork, or the source is um, a number of external stressors, not realizing that the danger is actually within. And obviously, when someone's dealing with mold toxicity and it's affecting their brain, they will have secondary relationship issues school issues, and so it becomes less clear to them as those areas are struggling what the original source might be. So I believe some of this explains the statistic that 21.2% of students who are diagnosed with depression will have lifelong symptoms. If, for example, mold toxicity is what caused their depression then yes that could be lifelong because they could continue to harbor mold toxins as well as colonization which would then create inflammation and they would continue to have that going forward. So in my practice I have seen a number of young adults that went off to college thriving but then returned either having depression anxiety, mood swings, brain fog, problems concentrating, or even psychosis. Their parents had them return home. Many of them remained ill and started conventional psychiatric care, including medications, um, some of which were beneficial. Some were highly reactive to the medications because when people have mold toxicity Again, their immune system can be on such high alert that be- they become highly reactive to medications, sometimes supplements, sometimes different foods. They can become more um, uh, reactive to emotional triggers. And this has to do with part of the immune system called mast cells, which I talk about in that article that I mentioned. And as I said, because young adulthood is uh, not an uncommon time for certain mental illness to start, again, from a conventional perspective, then those individuals are given diagnoses of major depression, bipolar disorder, or even schizophrenia diagnosis. No one is thinking, or very few people are thinking, gee, maybe while they were in the dorm, you know, the one that had the stains on the ceiling in their room, or the mold growth in the corner, or in one case... Um, I heard of a college asking the students to bring dehumidifiers for their to their room, so they were aware that there were vulnerabilities in the dorms and No one again may be considering that maybe after inhaling all those mold spores with toxins that their immune system started to react, and that this overactive immune system for many, if not most, means brain inflammation which then leads to things like depression, fatigue, anxiety, panic, ADHD diagnoses because of the inattention or brain fog, and for some severe mood swings. There can obviously be physical symptoms as well, though um, people don't necessarily have to have very many physical symptoms. Uh, Some of the things that one might see could be sinus congestion, gastrointestinal symptoms, shortness of breath or coughing, joint pain or morning stiffness, frequent urination, night sweats, problems regulating um, body temperature. There can also be headaches. And more specific to mold toxicity, though this doesn't have to be present, would be electric shock sensations, ice pick-like pains, numbness and tingling problems with balance or dizziness, um, tics, spasms, or seizure-like movements that are not identified as seizures when someone has an EEG. And I would say sensitivity to bright light and loud sounds and even light touch can also be a symptom of mold toxicity. Another uh, statistic to consider is that 73.1% of college center direct excuse me counseling center directors report a significant increase in severe mental health issues in college students so why the increase what is the difference in this population in this cohort of young people and so how how would mold toxicity explain this rise don't all dorms haven't they always been moldy or likely many Um, And I've mentioned that there's 25% of people who are vulnerable to mold toxicity. But I would argue that um, younger people and those younger people who will follow the college students will have further vulnerability than their predecessors. And here's why. And this relates very much to the microbiome, which is the balance of microbes in the gastrointestinal tract that is directly related to our immune system. And so our health is very much dependent on how much beneficial microbes we have, how much diversity of those microbes. And I would argue that the younger generation is having an increasingly compromised microbiome. And reasons for this could be um, the rise in C-section births. We are. Our microbiome is seeded through vaginal delivery. That's when we first... um, There's evidence to show that that's when the microbiome... um, We first get the microbes in our mouth um, that then start to seed and grow the microbiome and that children born by C-section birth don't have this opportunity. Um, Then from there, there's an increased rise in antibiotic use in children... And again, that could follow this vulnerability, especially for children born of C-section births, to have more ear infections and more upper respiratory infections, leading then to more antibiotics and a further compromised immune system. Then add um, uh, antibiotics for acne or Accutane had been used for acne, which further compromises the microbiome. Then go off to college, and perhaps there's heavy alcohol use, which further impacts the microbiome. And if you remember that we use alcohol to clean surfaces, you can imagine what it does when someone drinks a lot, what it would do to that microbial balance. Then you can add just stress of modern life and how it's becoming more stressful in part related to increased screen time less human interactions which human interactions are actually very calming to our physiology you can add the stress on young people to find employment and now the stress of COVID-19 and all the implications that will have on the lives of college students related to this is that those with mold toxicity, um, as I said, have a dysregulated immune system. And when we think about COVID-19, and yes, it is a virus, and the virus is a problem, but what can be more problematic for people is this excessive immune reaction to the presence of the virus. And it's that excessive reaction that is harming or killing people. And I would say especially young people. Um, People that are older and and sicker already have a degree of um, compromise. But young, healthy people that shouldn't, if they have mold toxicity, then they will have a dysregulated immune system that people may not be aware of. So I should comment that despite the growing knowledge about mold toxicity, availability of testing and treatment, there is still a great deal that we're learning. This area of medicine is still in its infancy, and we are collectively learning more every day. And even among the pioneers in this area, there is debate about the testing, evaluation and treatment, and even debate about whether mold colonizes the body. So the information that I am going to be sharing about evaluation and treatment is based on my own education, As well as my own personal and professional experience. And I should mention that I've been fortunate to have as a mentor Dr. Neil Nathan, who is one of the leading experts and pioneers in the area of mold toxicity and of complex chronic illness. So when we diagnose someone with mold toxicity, While there are some inflammatory blood markers that can be tested, many of us now instead use urine mycotoxin testing to identify which toxins are present. And knowing which toxins are present will impact which binders we use to remove the toxins from the body. And obviously, when it comes to treatment, it's not just about getting the toxins out of the body, it's assuring that more toxins aren't coming in. So evaluating one's current environment is essential. And and if the current environment is toxic and it's not a situation where someone has control over an ability to adequately remediate it, then obviously leaving that environment would be necessary for one to heal. So examples of... Um, What treatment might look like would first be, for some people, the beginning of treatment is calming the immune system, calming those mast cells that I talked about. And in doing that, that can very much calm um, the central nervous system as well. But then the next part of treatment, or the beginning, if that first part isn't necessary, would be to start binders. And again, those are specifically um, used... Uh, to target which toxins show up and so certain examples would be things like bentonite clay activated charcoal chlorella cholestyramine or and well which are both older cholesterol medications and the binders are sustained for a period of time there's quite a range of doses some people are very sensitive and can only tolerate tiny doses, and then other people with stronger physical constitutions are able to get to um, higher doses. And when someone is on the binders and on a, in a steady place with the binders, then the next step is to add antifungal treatment, um, which is not always necessary, but I would say usually necessary. And this can be addressing the sinuses and or gastrointestinal tract. Diet is important as um, sugar and a high-carbohydrate diet would feed mold as it would also feed yeast, which is a common um, overgrowth that can also occur in the gastrointestinal tract in someone that has mold, but also someone who has been on a lot of antibiotics. There are ways to pursue mycotoxin or mold toxin testing without the involvement of a physician. The two labs many of us use are Great Plains Lab and Real Time Lab. And both of those now have um, relationships with online sites that make them available directly to um, individuals without, without physicians. So while I'm not necessarily encouraging people not get the treatment and care that they may need, I recognize that um, seeing someone could be an obstacle to finding out one has mold toxicity. Originally, I started using real-time lab. It was quite an expensive test. Um, when Great Plains came out, I started to use more of it and... Um, After they had been out a while, real-time lowered their price. It is still more expensive than the Great Plains test, but I do find it to be a more reliable source of information. So lastly, I'd like to comment on two more statistics, and these relate to the campus presidents. 72% of campus presidents have reallocated funding to support mental health services. And 87% of campus presidents are likely to classify mental health of college students as one of the priorities. And obviously, from my perspective, the biggest way to impact student health may be to address the living conditions in in the dorms and to raise awareness about mold toxicity and its implications. Do I expect this podcast to go on and change the reality of college dorms? No, but this is my attempt to get the word out. And even if this reaches one person or one family and gives them a different story to consider, a story that adds more hope and more potential than the one that our culture currently tells about college students who develop psychiatric symptoms or who drop out, then I will consider this time well spent. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach me at my website, courtneysnydermd.com. If you know someone who this information might be helpful to, please share. I can be reached also, I should say, on Facebook and on Instagram under the name Holistic Psychiatry Podcast.